I'm actually going to start in Proverbs 18.21. You're familiar with this maybe, and it's the definitive statement on the tongue in the Bible. Look up on the side screens, and I've got it in two versions. Proverbs 18.21, the New American Standard, death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. The message, a paraphrase, reads thus, words kill, words give life. They're either poison or fruit you choose. Now think about that. When you and I open our mouth, it's either death or it's life. That's it. And that's the sobriety that we bring to this text today. Now, James, of course, here is going to focus on, quite frankly, the negative, the, the death side of words. And that's what makes this so sobering. But we're not going to forget that it is also with our tongue that we give life. All right, back to James 3, 1 to 12. Uh, here's how we're going to walk through this. Um, he starts with a dire warning, Okay. I'm going to start with the dire warning, and then we're going to work through three things I'll mention in just a moment. First, by way of context, I don't want to miss, as Rob brought us through chapter 2 last week, we just finished what is the definitive statement in the Bible on faith and works. And you and I have been walking around with these coins, and I keep mine in my pocket, and I just kind of rub it every once in a while to remind me that faith without works is dead in the same sense that you cannot remove one side of this coin and still have a dollar coin, which this is. No, that our, our, our belief and our actions are together. You can't separate them. Well, why is it that James would go from this strong biblical foundation of faith and works and their inseparability to now what is, by the way, the longest statement in our Bible regarding the tongue. I mean, you can find things about the tongue all through the Bible, but you won't find a longer treatment than what James does right here. What does that have to do with faith and works are inseparable? Well, let me suggest it. It's this. That our words are a work. Our words are a work. And I want to argue that James is pressing home this point. Our words are the most significant work we'll ever do. Our words are the most significant work that we will ever do. Now think about that. You, know, you might go, well, no, I, you know, we helped start a church. That was our most significant work. I started an orphanage in Africa. I've done this. We've done that. We've built this. Our words are the most significant work that we will ever do. James is going to show us why. Now, again, he starts with this dire, you know, it's a very serious uh, warning but then he's going to say three things about the tongue that I think would reinforce what I just said. I'll say it, and then I'm going to say it again, okay, as I go through it. But three things he'll say about the tongue. The tongue is small in size, but great in impact. The tongue cannot be tamed by man. And the tongue is connected to the heart. Again, I'm going to repeat them. 
I wanna start with a dire warning. Go back to James 3. Let's look at verses one and two. James right, and he says, let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man able to bridle the whole body as well. Think about this in, in, in one sense. I'm the teacher. He's writing to churches. So this isn't a church setting. I'm the teacher. And I will say more words than anyone in the room this morning. In the synagogue, uh, there were they, 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 the early church modeled itself after the synagogue where the rabbi would explain the scripture and then other people would stand up and explain the scripture. And it seems that James here is writing to these churches because uh, there seems to be there seem to be people who want to stand up in the church and say, this is what God says. We know that's not a bad thing because God has given the church, pastor, teacher is one of the gifts of the church. So he's not saying uh, we need fewer teachers. He's not saying that, but he's saying, if you stand up to teach, do you understand the gravity of what you're doing when you say, this is what God said? Two principles at work in this, and these are principles that throughout the Bible, and they're even, this is true in life. The greater the responsibility, the greater the accountability. Think about your career, your life. The greater the responsibility, the greater your accountability. You have more on your plate, uh, you're more accountable. And there's a second principle, and that would be this. We are accountable for what we're given. So whatever we're given, we must give an account for that. You and I will never stand before God and, and, and have to give an account for our sin. We won't, right? That's been done. It's, we've, it, it's in, Jesus has satisfied the payment for our sin. We never will, but do not forget, men and women, we, we if you know Christ, we will give an account to God for our works. What do you mean for our works? We don't, it's not our works that save us. No, it's not, it's not we give an account for our salvation, but we give an account for what we did with what we were given. The parable of the talents. Stewardship. Having trusted Christ, what have you done with what Christ has given you? We, we do give an, we're accountable to God for these things. 1 Corinthians 5. That's why I've often said that being in church is one of the most dangerous places you can be. Why would I say that? It, simply because of this principle. If, if you're someone, and, and you know, if you're someone who, who is in church often, uh, and, and, and you, you like what you hear, but, but you never, you know, over, over time, your life is never characterized by trusting what God has said, then you just keep putting yourself in a dangerous place where you're accountable for what you hear. Now, if you're here and you don't know Christ and you're just learning and going, I'm trying to understand God, that's, that's different. You know what I'm saying? But we're accountable for what we're given. Then it's the next thing I think that's, that really should kind of catch our attention. He says that this one area of life determines all the others. That's that's shocking in a sense. He's saying, if this area, what area? Your tongue, your speech, your words are spirit controlled, 
then the rest of your life will be spirit, will fall in line. And that's the one where we go, what? So, so that, pay that much attention to the tongue? Yes, yes. How is it that he can invest so much weight in the tongue? Well, he gives, he gives these three reasons. So now we, we touch upon what I said earlier. And the first thing we're going to notice is he says the tongue is small in size, but great in impact. The tongue is small in size, but great in impact. Look at three through six. He says, now if we put the bits into the horse's mouths so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body. I want you to notice the little and the large, the little and the large. Look at the ships also, though they are so great and are driven by strong winds, are still directed by a very small rudder wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. In the same way, so also, he says, the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. Tell us what you really think, James. <laughs> it's like, okay. Each illustration, small, large, small, large. The, the tiny bit in a horse's mouth. You guys have children, some that ride horses, and you've seen kids ride horses. 80-pound child moves the reins. You know, 1,800-pound horse turns. Tiny rudder in proportion to the ship. Wind's blowing, the little rudder turns, the ship turns, regardless of what the wind's doing. In the same way, the tongue, oh my, just such a little thing, but whoo, do you notice the forest? It sets a flame and the damage it does. Contrary to what some have said, or, you know, kind of, I, I heard this as I was studying. Some say, well, the tongue's the most. The tongue's the strongest muscle in the body. It's not. Okay, so, so kind of myth buster. It's not the strongest uh, muscle in the body. There are eight muscles in your tongue, which is fascinating. It gets, it's why we can, you hear my words right now using my tongue. Um, I would say this, though. I think James says the tongue is the most potent, or I'd say this, the most powerful muscle in the body. What, what do I mean? I mean this, you know, you know your, I don't know, your legs probably the strongest muscles in your body. What, you know, you can lift with your legs, you know, deadlift, weightlift, all that leg presses. The, the, the hundreds of pounds you can lift with these muscles doesn't compare to the damage that can be done by the movement of the tongue. That's the point that he's making. When I was eight or nine years old, um, probably in the fourth grade, um, I, uh, we were having our, um, I don't know, our segment, whatever you call it, in um, drama, you know, or theater. And uh, everyone got an assignment to um, act out a scene, okay? Uh, I'm an introvert, you know, if, all, you know, if you're an introvert, you know, didn't turn, I didn't turn into one when I was 50. I've always been, and, and, and so I'm not really into being in front of people anyways, and you're eight years old, you're insecure. I don't know, some people love this stuff. You know, I just never have. So everyone gets an, everyone gets an assignment to act out a scene. 
Now, what's fascinating to me about this is I'm probably eight or nine years old, and I, there's not much about I can remember about life at eight or nine. I remember this. And so my assignment was, um, you, uh, Lloyd, you're, you need to act like you're walking through the woods and you see a skunk. Okay? So, you know, kids do their thing, whatever. And so my turn comes. You get in front of the class. And I, I, this, this is what I did. So I get in front of the class and I go... There you go. There's my, there's my acting debut, you know. Thank you. And uh, so, you know, you, you feel, I don't know, I do. I feel self-conscious, whatever. But I, I, I did, literally, that was my assignment. That's what I did. And the first words out of the teacher's mouth, she said, no one whistles when they're walking in the woods by themselves. Now, I, she did not mean that ill. She did not mean that kind of thing. She's making an observation. I have no idea. But at eight, I'm just telling you those words, they went in. And they went down, and something in me just shriveled. I mean, it's, it's a light thing. You know, it's kind of silly, isn't it? That, that, but, I, but I will tell you, I was already somewhat insecure, but I'm telling you, I went way insecure. And here's what's so strange. The whole thing took eight seconds. She, made, she gave me maybe 12 words and 50 years later. I still feel that, and I felt it all my life. And I know this is silly, but like, I hate charades. I hate, don't ever ask me to be in your drama. Like, hey, could you do a sketch, Lloyd? No, you know, I can't stand to act, you know? And some of you are thinking, and it's fine, and I would think this too, you know, well, Lloyd, if that's, if, if those are the only words that hurt you, boy, you've had a blessed life. And I would say, indeed, I would if those were the only words that hurt me, but there are other words that I carry with me. And there's nobody in this room that's not carrying words from childhood through adolescence that have not shaped your self-esteem and image your view of people, your, 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 your view of God himself, the words that people said that go in like a harpoon with the hook on the end and they don't come out and they remain. You spend a lifetime just trying to handle different harpoons that have punctured, honestly, our hearts. And I thought about this this morning as I was reviewing notes and reviewing the message. It, it dawned on me, Proverbs 26, 22 says, words, the words of a whisperer are like dainty morsels and they go down into the innermost part of the body. You know what innermost means in Hebrew? Chambers of the belly. The idea is that words go deeper then deep to the core of the human heart. Wow. If you think about words, you know, this is silly in a way, but there's no defense. Think about it. If, if someone's saying something to me, you can't get your ears plugged fast enough. You can't stop them. They are going through your hands. They're entering your ear. They're vibrating. And they're going to the chambers of your belly. 
You could, you could honestly, you could block a stick. A few stones may fly by. Can't stop the words from going in. I know that there are in this room, and there's always for us, um, there's other things that hurt and harm us, and, and I don't want to dis- diminish at all the, quite frankly, the physical harm that many of us suffer through life, inappropriately wrong, evil, okay? I'm not diminishing that at all when I say this, but I think many of us would choose sticks and stones over the words that were spoken and lodged in our heart. Now ultimately, why would James say that words are so devastating? Well, he doesn't mince words here, does he? When in verse 6, the end of it, he says, and is set on fire by hell. Where do these harmful words come from? Hell. What does he mean? Well, Hell here is the Greek Gehenna. It is literally the Valley of Hinnom. So you got to think some geography here. When you think valley in this sense, and I didn't know this till like, you really see it, but think ravine. It's more like a ravine. Just like in the Bible, by the way, when it says on the mountain, most of those are kind of like, like hills, you know, but we go with, no, it's like a ravine. It's a, it's a ravine on the southwestern side of Jerusalem, old Jerusalem. And it's the side of the, the most vile and putrid sins of the nation of Israel when they sacrificed their children in this valley. It, it was a bad place and it became a dump and dead bodies thrown in there and trash. And even in Jesus' day, the valley of Hinnom, Gehenna, was, was, was a burning maggot-filled dump right? Like dumps today, if they're on fire in some third world country maybe, and you know, the fire never goes out. And so Jesus takes that literal place and he, he sees it as, as an apt metaphor, as an apt picture of the, of the, the home of Satan, because he'll be in the lake of fire forever, but also as the, the destiny of all who forsake and, and rebel and choose not to trust Christ. He, he, he says, this is, this is what it's like, separation from God. It's sobering and serious. There's 12 times the word hell is used in the New Testament. James uses it here once, and then all 11 other times, it's when Jesus is speaking of Gehenna. And that's the the, the source. And so you think about this. Not only does the tongue do your words and mine, because, you know, a little word, big impact. Not only do our words have a disproportionate impact, They're demonic in source when we're speaking evil and harm. The tongue's small in size, great in impact. And secondly, he says, the tongue cannot be tamed by man. Look at verses 7 through 10. He says, for every species of beasts and birds, of birds, of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race, by man. But no one, no man can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness 
of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not be this way. And I think all of us would kind of go, wow, it really shouldn't be this way. I mean, we all, we all just sang these amazing songs. Your mercy is more. You know, you're, you're worthy of praise. And the truth is, we, I won't get through this coming week without a word about someone. It's either untrue or hurtful, harmful, not kind. This is not like cussing. This is to speak ill, demean another person. He says it's a restless evil. I've got a verse up here on the screen that certainly Peter's gonna write later, but I think captures what he's saying. What do you mean tongues a restless evil? Notice Peter says in 1 Peter 5, 8, he says, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And you watch these, these uh, discovery shows, which I, you know, I like watching these, you know, it's the pride. And you see that, that you know, their shoulders are just like this. And you're thinking, oh my gosh, it's just ready to pounce on somebody. That, that's the tongue. It's restless. It's, it's just waiting to... It's, it's full of poison. Uh, James probably had in mind a number of passages, but Psalm 143 says this, they sharpen their tongues as a serpent. Poison of a viper is under their lips. What's, what's David talking about? He's talking about when his enemies are saying what's not true about him, demeaning him, cursing him. It's like they're, they're putting poison in me. Now, what's, what we've got to understand is we've got to see in the context of James. He's not talking about the, your enemies who want to bite you with poison. He's talking about your brothers and sisters. This is the church speaking this way of one another. James is saying nothing less than this, okay? This is cookies on the lower shelf. When you and I say something harmful, hurtful about another human being, we're saying it about God for that human being is made in the image of God. And I'm going, but you don't know this person. This guy's such a, you know. Every human being made in the image of God. So when we speak in that way about another person, you're saying God is like that. You know, at this point, I just want to close the Bible, take a 30-day word fast and not say a word. It's almost like we all just need to shut up and we'd be a lot better. But that's not what we do because that's not what James says the solution is. It's not just stop talking. Now think about what I said earlier about the power of the tongue. Why would it not just be stop talking? Because death is in the power of the tongue. What else is in the power of the tongue? Life, you all, life. Well, the tongue cannot be tamed by man. The tongue is small in size, yet great in impact. There's the last thing I want to catch on verses 11 and 12. It says the tongue is connected to the heart. Look at verses 11 and 12. Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives or a vine produce figs? Nor can salt water produce 
fresh. Rhetorical questions. What's the answer to both of the questions? Can, can, can a, a fresh spring spew out bitter water? What's the answer? Can a fig tree produce grapes? No, 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 no. It can't, it can't be done. I, I was a bit frustrated in studying this passage because I, I honestly, I'm just so weighted down <laughs> with the reality of this thing in my mouth that's like a nuclear blast, you know, when I open my mouth that I just want to go, James, I get it. Tell me what to do. And he doesn't really, it doesn't seem, does it? He just, it's just like he pounds another nail in it. Do you understand that this is unacceptable? And I'm kind of going, yes. But I think when we pay attention to what he says, he actually does, he actually does instruct us on what we do, what we pay attention to. Albert Einstein is quoted as having said this, and as I looked at the quotes, you find it said in different ways. So when you look this up, if you do note, I might say it a little different than another source, but you get the gist of it. He said, quote, if I were given <coughs> one hour to save the planet, I would spend 59 minutes defining the problem and one minute solving it, end quote. I really believe James has not finished defining the problem. And it's not here until the last two verses that honestly I think he, 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 he defines clearly the problem. And when, that, when, we, when we pay attention to the problem defined clearly, oh, 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 that's what you're saying. I think we begin to understand what he's inviting us to do. What do I mean? Well, when you read 11 and 12, we notice these things at least. He's talking about source. He's talking about nature. He's talking about if the source of a spring, in other words, the, the place that it comes from is fresh, then fresh will come. But if the source is bitter, literally, then it's bitter, it won't do both. If the fig, if, if the roots are fig, then the fruit will be fig. If the roots, the source, the nature is grapes, then it will produce grapes. If the source of the tongue is fallen, it's going to come out fallen and evil. And what we know, again, this is where we you know, understand our Bible as a whole, and certainly the New Testament here, what we know is the scripture is very clear that the source of every movement of this muscle in my mouth, okay, it's not connected to the back of my throat ultimately. It's connected to my heart. It's connected to the heart. Well, how do we know this? Well, think of James, his half-brother. He, he did not forget the words of his half-brother in Matthew 12, 34, uh, Jesus said to the Pharisees, I'm gonna put this on the screen so you see it. He says, you brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak what is good? For the mouth speaks out of which fills the heart. We go further in Matthew's gospel, Matthew 15. The disciples are accused of being unclean because they didn't wash their hands before they ate some grain. And so, boy, you, that's the law says you wash your hands. You put, you put dirty hands on food. The food's now dirty. You've eaten it. Now you're dirty and unclean. What did Jesus have to say? Matthew 15, 
18, but the, he says, do you not understand that everything that goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is eliminated? But the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart and those defile the man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, theft, false witnesses, slanders. By golly, he could keep going because this is, not a, this is not an exhaustive list. He's just going, this is the stuff that comes out of the heart. I was thinking what's in my own heart and the words that I use at times. And I think this is a general principle not always true, but generally I think we, might, we would agree with this, that we tend to harm those we love the most. It's like, no, 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 if I want to harm someone, I want to harm someone I don't like. But we tend to harm the ones we love most, harm deepest. Certainly it's true. I think if you're married, I, you know, I, I, I would think, of, I think about times that Lisa and I get into arguments and disagreements, and I, I, God is my witness. I want you to know that we do. We, we generally can resolve it, and oftentimes it ends with me saying, not always, but me saying, honey, I'm so sorry I said that. I am. Will you forgive me? And, uh, and, and she does. But, I want, but, but, but when, I'm, when I'm keenly aware of my heart, my repentance often needs to go deeper. I'm not saying this happens every time because it's not true every time, but there are Plenty of times when I've not done this, but there's been others when I have, aware of my heart, I've had to look at Lisa and say, honey, I'm sorry I said that. I, I, I know that hurts you, and I am so sorry. Will you forgive me? And then I go the next step, and I say, because the truth is, I wanted to hurt you. That's why I said that. I wanted, to, I wanted to hurt you. I just wanted to shame you. That's the truth, though, isn't it? Not always, but sometimes. And see, if I can go there, then I've, then I've, then I've engaged my heart and her forgiveness. <laughs> Quite frankly, it may not come as quickly, but boy, as, as she works her own forgiveness, wow, now she's forgiven me at a level of her own heart. Boy, the heart, ugh. So James is showing that the solution for solution is, is, is not taming the tongue. You know how you always go, we need to tame our tongues. You can't. Quit trying. We've got to go deeper than that. We need a new heart. If it's connected to the heart, I need a new heart because this one's just messed up. So the place to begin when, you pay, when we pay attention is actually we go, what is the answer here? And really the place to begin is salvation. If I need a new heart, there's only one place you get a new heart and that's with faith in Christ. The application here is if you've never trusted Christ, you're trying to tame your tongue is trying to hold back the ocean and the tide. You can't, you won't. Gotta have a new heart. And that's what we're promised when we put true faith in Christ. When you and I individually are able to say, Jesus, 
You died on the cross for my sins. You were buried and rose again. And God, I am confessing, I'm agreeing with you that you did that for me. And in that moment of belief, you see, we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. The Bible says we're born again and we actually get a new heart. We get a new heart. We're cleansed from all our sins. All our sins, all our sins are forgiven. We're clothed in his righteousness. And now the Holy Spirit lives in us, in our Heart, I'm gonna describe that in a moment, to reproduce the life of Jesus in and through us. And therefore, from our heart, we can speak life and not death. It begins with salvation. We need a new heart. (laughs) And that's what happens when we put our trust in Christ, which by the way, I want you to go back to what I said earlier. I argued that James will say, that our words are the most significant work we'll ever do. How is one saved? How is one saved? Think about it. By our words. By crying out to God. You talk about important. No wonder he pays so much attention to the tongue. Now, we're going to pray as we have been taking a few moments at the end to pray and... uh, before we do, I, I want to walk us through something that's so critical for us to grasp. And this is a bit of review, but it's also something I want you to know. Let me get back where you can, most of you can see this. I want you to know this is our mission as a church, what I'm describing. If you're at fellowship, let me tell you where we're going, who we are, what we believe. We believe God has put us in this place at this time in history to glorify him by making disciples, by helping people. Find wholehearted life in Jesus. Well, what does that mean, finding wholehearted life in Jesus? Well, this is what it means, what I'm gonna describe to you here. The heart in the Bible is not the, or it is, it it can refer to the organ, but it's rare. I can count on one one hand the times the heart is described as the organ. The heart in the Bible is the core of who you are. Are. When the Bible talks about your true nature, it talks about your heart. It's the control center of your life and mine. When you start reading your Bible, I want you to pay attention and, and circle every time it says heart. That's what I've been doing for about a year now. You just wear out your pencil. The heart, clearly in the Bible, we've, we've, we've built the biblical groundwork for this, and it's clear theologically that it's from the heart that we think that we feel, that we desire, and that we choose. All four comprise the heart. All four are a unity, if you will, inseparable. That's wholehearted. Does that make sense? Now, when we're born, we're born fallen. We're born of Adam and Eve, and we're born with shattered hearts, if you will. Well, what do you mean shattered hearts? Lord, well, this is where I'm trying to... We're trying to help, help us see this in a way that helps us learn how to live it. Well, we're born with our thoughts, emotions, desires, and choices way out of whack, totally unconnected, fragmented, divided. And therefore, we go through life not with a whole undivided heart. How do we enter this world and live this world? We come in with a shattered heart that such we live this way. We have emotions, we blow up. I feel, I do. Well, you're not living with your whole heart. Or we live with just our desires. I desire this, so I take it. 
That's narcissism. The others you want to call um, hedonism. You know, I, I feel it, I do it. It could be that we actually do have thoughts and so we get our thoughts and we choose. Thoughts and we choose. This is true, I do it. This is true, I do it. This is true, I do it. And I would suggest that's, it's, it's really legalism. But none of those are wholehearted, are they? Because you're just taking a part of your heart to live life. What can unite the heart? Well, we gotta have a, we gotta have a new heart. And here's, I'm gonna cut quick on this, but this is where we understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. That in Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection on our behalf, in the cross, we are given a new heart. Our hearts are brought back together. As David says in the Psalms, give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name, such that in the cross, in the cross of Christ, our heart is united. And therefore, our thoughts, emotions, desires, and choices are connected to the cross. Okay, Lloyd, I'm getting close on that. I think I can see that. Well, what does that mean though when you're talking about if the, heart, if the tongue's connected to the heart, we need God to change our hearts. Here's what I mean. Last week, right before I taught, I should never do this, but I did. And I, I, was, I hit a few emails and there was an email that said something about me personally and about the church corporately that I did not agree with. And uh, I just got mad, you know. And uh, honestly, I'm thinking in my head, okay, what I, I'm shooting an email right back. We're going to set up a meeting. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put this person in their place. This is going to be, you know, and I'm just. <clears throat> I, had to, I had to get up and teach this. <laughs> you know, and I go, Lord, I, and, I, and I pause, and, and here's what happens, though. What happened was I heard something, read something, so I read it, and I went, this is what I'm thinking. This is what's going on in my mind, and I'm going to tell you something. I am mad as a hornet. And I'm actually hurt, which by the way, when you get hurt, you should, you know, we do get mad, we get angry. So I was feeling angry. By the way, emotions, as we're trying to help us as a community of faith understand, you cannot separate the spiritual life from the emotional life. It's all your heart, you see. And God is an emotional being and so are we. And please never walk out of here going, you know, Lloyd just always saying, go by your feelings. No, I'm not. I'm saying you gotta feel your feelings because that's to be human. And to not feel is to be not human, you know? And I didn't learn that till I was 45 years old. But so I'm angry. And then I go over here to the desire, sorry, and I go, desire, what do I, what do I want? What do I deeply desire? You know what I deeply desired? I desire to just smash this thing, these, this person. That's what I, it's the truth, okay? But see, because I'm in Christ and the Holy Spirit lives in me, I, I, I went, Lord, you got to stop here at the desire and go, Lord, Jesus, why did you die on the cross for me? To satisfy the deepest longings of my heart. So that I don't have to go be right all the time. So I don't have to go put this person in their place so they know I'm good and right and the church is this. Jesus is my everything. So when I'm aware of that in that desire part of my heart, then I can choose not to strike back, but I can choose from a heart that's been, you see, my heart's been changed. 
Now I'm not just paying lip service. I can go from a heart that's satisfied in Jesus. And I can speak those words that come not from my flesh, which I still do often, but from the Spirit. Now if I described it, as I described it, I want you to think about it this way. So the, the path of sanctification, okay, Lloyd, get a little more granular on this. Well, we live life like this. Things happen and we have thoughts. You gotta pay attention to what you're thinking. What am I thinking right now? What is it? But then you also pay attention to say, well, what am I feeling? What am I feeling? Because life will prompt emotions in us and you gotta be aware of them. We don't act on the emotion. You just feel the emotion. I feel gladness, fabulous. I feel sadness, great. You understand, why wouldn't you feel sad when your mother passes away? That's to be human. Why wouldn't you feel angry when something wrong is done? Because that's to be human, so you feel your emotion. But you don't act on your emotion. You go, well, what's my deepest desire? What's my deepest longing of my heart? Because we're all made with these deep longings that only Jesus can satisfy. And when we come to the desire, say, Lord, why, Jesus, why did, bottom line is you're, invi- you're bringing your whole heart to the cross. Why did Jesus die? Jesus, I'm about to do something I know I'm gonna regret. So I need to stop and ask the question, why did you die for me? You died so that I wouldn't do that which harms others or myself because you satisfy the deepest longings of my heart and the spirit changes my desires and therefore I then can choose to live, act, speak life, not death. Imagine this is a needle, a needle, and there's a thread. The, the life of sanctification, growing in Christ-likeness, just, it, it looks like this, you all. What am I thinking? What am I feeling? What are my deepest desires? What has Christ done for me on the cross? And now I'm gonna choose. How many times do you have to do this? How many times do you have to do this? Till you're dead. That's what the Christian life is. Taking all that we are heart to the cross, bringing the cross to everything that's happening in our world. And then when this thing waggles up here, waggling what's true of the heart, God has saved me. 